Hello and welcome to Player One Bias. I'm Pippin, the adventurous hobbit. And I'm Player Two, Bjorn, the man-bear transforming person. So in case you couldn't tell, uh, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings. Uh, And as we all know, this is a massive fantasy epic that spans three main novels, multiple other books, and a huge legendarium uh, that really has encompassed almost a century. And so we definitely don't feel that we're able to cover everything that we really want to about this series in just one episode. So for today's episode, we're going to be focusing on the author of this legendarium, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, And we're really going to be hitting on his inspiration behind the work, uh, how he was so interested in mythologies and world creation uh, and everything that went into that, that Lord of the Rings was really a byproduct of his interests and and what he really enjoyed in life. Yeah, it's almost as if the stories are something he comes up with so he has, so he can work on the world. There needs to be people in the world to make it like living and breathing, but he wants to come up with the languages and histories more so than the stories and we definitely see that you know in his work and everything that he's doing uh throughout his life and that and that really the lord of the rings legendarium is just a byproduct of that uh it it, it didn't start as the main part of what he was doing so uh J.R.R. tolkien uh, otherwise known as john ronald rule tolkien uh was born the 3rd of january 1892 in orange free state south africa uh his father was an english bank manager uh who was sent to manage a new uh, branch of the bank in South Africa. Um, the, the name Tolkien, uh, which does kind of come up a little bit later uh, in his story, uh, was thought to have been derived from uh, the Germanic Tolkun, uh, which was meant to be foolishly brave or stupidly clever. Uh, and this was the belief held by J.R.R. and his family. Uh, however, later, uh, once you know he got famous and stuff, a third-party researcher said that it was derived from Tolkien, uh, or son of translator or interpreter in uh, the Germanic. Uh, Tolkien's translation uh, was thought to you know, kind of be uh, funny and important to him, so he kind of encompassed that by using a pseudonym, uh, Oxymore, um, that was you know, kind of a play on words of his own name. So in South Africa, uh, when he was three years old, Um, His family decided to leave uh, and go back to England for a lengthy family visit, Um, you know, returning back to their home country, seeing everyone that was there, all that kind of stuff. Uh, And his father actually ended up dying in South Africa uh, before he could join them uh, of a rheumatic fever. During his time in South Africa, Tolkien was bitten by a large baboon spider, uh, which if you haven't seen a picture, I recommend it. Those things are crazy. Uh, I don't recommend it. (laughs) If you don't like spiders, maybe don't look up a picture, but these things are rather large. It's like a big tarantula. I think it's a kind of tarantula. Yes, and they are uh, uh, not fun to deal with, apparently. Some people think that uh, this incident kind of had some influence on his later works with some of the spiders and stuff you see and all the creatures, Uh, but he claims to have no recollection of the event. Um, So while they were on vacation uh, to see their family in England and then their father then died, uh, they just stayed in England and and they moved in with his mother's parents. 
Um, so they, they moved around a little bit uh, during this time. They didn't stay in one place for, for very long while they were in England. Uh, one of the places they ended up being at was King's Heath. Uh, they were there for a short period of time, and their house backed up to a railroad line that ran to and from South Wales. And this is a fairly significant part in his childhood uh, that really, I think, pushed him to be so involved in linguistics uh, and become a philologist that he later did in life. So if you know the Welsh language at all, uh, the linguistics are very, very interesting. If you look at the spelling of towns or even just normal words, they are not what we typically think of in English or honestly, I would say a lot of language. So I definitely think this contributed to his interest in language at a very young age. Yeah, it's a very interesting sounding language. And like you mentioned, and so, so apparently it is written in the same alphabet that we use, but it's they're not like the Latin sounds. So there are, it could be this big long word with no vowels, you know, maybe some Y's in there. And it has this totally wild sound. As someone who really my, my main and only language is English, it's, it's wild. Uh, it's like Russian where you see just all vowels and you have no idea what's going on and you can't even like begin to understand how to pronounce it. And even to some extent, you know, like Irish and Celtic and stuff like similar to that really. Which makes sense, because it comes from the same part of the world. So they continue to move around England, uh, and when Tolkien, whenever they found a place, and whenever they started living there, he really liked to explore the surrounding countryside, uh, a lot of which in, in you know the British Isles are mills, bogs, hills, random villages, and stuff like that. Uh, and one of the most notable being his aunt's farm, Bag End. Uh, which if you know anything about The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, you'll, you'll recognize that name for sure. Yep, yeah, that's kind of where the story starts. Right. And, and the more famous books. Really, at, at this age, that's kind of where his story starts, too, right? He, he's young, influential, uh, or, you know, very able to be influenced, I guess. Uh, yeah. Running around the There's countryside. <laughs> These are all things that you, you definitely see in his novels, for sure. And really, this is a thread that uh, is prevalent in a lot of famous fantasy creatives. If you look at a lot of people uh, like the creator of The Legend of Zelda uh, or, or really, you know, books, movies, all that kind of stuff, they, they tend to have kind of this thread of them exploring nature, exploring where they are, having something outside of them. Uh, and then really that, that environment that they're in ends up becoming like a great canvas for them uh, to put all of their creativity onto and create something with. So what is it, do you think, about being outdoors that makes people more creative or gives them time to think because you're right that is something a lot of people credit their creative process absolutely i i it, it's definitely something that is bigger than yourself you know uh, there's this this life this other other stuff that you really don't have any control over it's something that you know is exists on its own and thrives on its own and is so much bigger than you really that i think it kind of uh, puts everything into perspective, and it also allows a, a lot of room for imagination, right? I mean, how many little kids do they go outside and, like, play sword fight or whatever? I think a lot of that kind of stems from that that being in nature. I think part of it is that there's a lack of stimulus when you're just outside. Like, obviously, there's very, you know, pretty natural areas, and sometimes you see some birds and deer and the more common wildlife. But in general, you're just kind of in this open expanse and there's not, 
people aren't trying to talk to you and you're not thinking about your conversations and and now especially in modern times right you're you're maybe not don't have your phones and music or anything like that and so you your mind is using less of its processing power basically and you've got more time to kind of spin up your own imagination maybe yeah i i, I think the the stimulus that maybe nature or or certain environments provide like say a mill that you know, has a water wheel and a river and it kind of sparks, sparks your creativity and lets you imagine things. But I think it's also that, you know, the activity, the action of, uh, maybe leaving your house and going to explore that, that like sense of adventure that allows also sure. for that creativity. Yeah, that's a good point. So when Tolkien was 12, his mother died of type one diabetes, uh, as insulin would not be discovered for another two decades. At this point in time, diabetes was a fatal disease, unlike now. So that was a, a pretty tragic moment for him as both his father, which he didn't really know, but his mother, who he did know very well uh, and cared for him, uh, passed away. So Tolkien and his one younger brother, Hillary, uh, were moved to the care of Friar Francis Xavier Morgan. And they later described him as being a father figure that taught him much of life and most of everything that he really cared about, uh, including his religion, Catholicism. So he lived in Birmingham uh, under the care of Friar Francis Xavier Morgan. Uh, and his environment was significantly different than that which he'd experienced uh, as a younger child as they were moving around. So they did live in a city. Uh, and they lived under the shadow of two large towers, which, uh, if you know the Lord of the Rings series, kind of a little foreshadowing there. Uh, many definitely correlate this imagery that he got from living under this dark kind of environment to a lot of the stuff that he included in his books, as well as the two towers themselves uh, in, in the second Lord of the Rings novel being called The Two Towers. At a young age, Tolkien mastered Latin and Greek, uh, which were education staples at the time, uh, but he did them extremely quickly. Uh, and at a very young age, and, and then he went on to learn multiple other languages, uh, mainly modern, uh, but definitely a lot of emphasis at his younger age on ancient languages. Uh, he kind of considered himself a bad boy, because when he was supposed to be learning like Latin or Greek, uh, he, he would start studying uh, Finnish or Gothic or other ancient languages instead that didn't really have a place in his schooling or really in that time period at all. I think it's funny that languages like Latin and Greek were considered ancient or obscure at that time. Yeah, well, I mean, early 1900s, right? It's things have I mean, changed in a hundred years. Speaking Latin, probably I'm not. I mean, it, it was probably you know in association with a church or something like translating things. Or, yeah, that 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 um, definitely could be it. So in his early years, uh, Tolkien was exposed to constructed languages by his cousins uh, who had constructed their own language called Animalic. Uh, he then worked with uh, some of his cousins to create another more complex language called Nevbosh, uh, which was soon followed by his first solo language, Nafrin, uh, which was based on Spanish and Latin. Uh, before 1909, he also learned Esperanto, uh, which back then was meant to be a universal international language, uh, kind of honestly what English is doing now. Uh, it was yeah, meant, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, <laughs> it was meant to be the language that everyone would be able to speak. In any nation, anywhere they went in the world, it would be something that everyone would understand. It, it yeah, Somehow it just all shook out to everyone learning English instead. Right, and it 
Esperanto not not popular anymore. That is for sure. It was big back then, but no longer. And so in 1911, you, oh, go ahead. Do you know like what was it rooted in? Uh, it was some guy who studied, uh, who was a philologist and studied language, uh, and he thought, hey, like this is going to be really important. The world is globalizing. We need to get something together that really allows us to be able to do this. Um, and so he made up a language, uh, 100%, just like from scratch. And it it was popular for a small period of time. It was kind of a fad and then just died out pretty hard. I'm, I'm kind of just looking up different phrases. It, Yeah, it looks like a, just a mishmash of a bunch of European. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. So in 1911, uh, Tolkien formed the Tea Club and Barovian Society uh, with three friends, Rob Gilson, Jeffrey Bach-Smith, and Christopher Wiseman. They named the club TCBS after their fondness of drinking tea at the Barrow store near their school. Uh, this group mainly focused on poetry, and this is where Tolkien really got into writing, uh, only as a poet, though, not as prose that we really, really know him for. Although in a lot of his stuff, he did include poetry and songs that were honestly really awesome. Also in 1911, they took a summer holiday, the, the TCSB and a few of their other friends, uh, to Switzerland, which would be a massive, or which, which would have an extremely large impact uh, on the later settings of his stories. So not only the, the nature on everything that was around his house, but also this trip to Switzerland was extremely impactful for him. And I know, I know neither of us have been to Switzerland, but uh, I've had some friends that have, and based on the pictures and the, just the imagery you see, it, it definitely seems like such a beautiful place. And the scale of the mountains and everything that's around it just seems like majestic. Yeah, I think the mountains especially come into play. Because anytime there's a, a mountain in the story, it's not just like an obstacle or a landmark along the way. It's, it's there's usually some very important like conflict, and it's usually a big physical challenge for the characters. Absolutely, and so Tolkien directly attributes this trip uh, to being really the main source of inspiration for Bilbo's journey across the Misty Mountains uh, in The Hobbit. He directly correlates this to his hike from Interlaken uh, in Sweden to Lotterbrunnen. So do you think he got abducted by goblins? I'm, I'm going to guess <laughs> not, although he may have imagined that. You know, I, I who knows, man? You, you never know with this guy. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been there. Right, so. right. There definitely could be goblins living in Sweden. We don't know. So when he was 16, he met... Edith Mary Bratt uh, at the boarding house that he lived in under the mm -hmm. care uh, of the friar. And he quickly, you know, they became very interested in each other. Uh, she was three years his senior. They had a lot in common. Uh, but he was forbidden from talking to her as she was Protestant and affecting his grades. So his, his guardian, Father Francis, said, I don't want you having anything to do with her until you're 21. And then you can do whatever you want. So, as soon as he turned 21, he wrote her a letter saying, I know we haven't talked in, you know, four years or whatever, but you should marry me. She immediately cut off her current engagement, uh, which she had gotten into because she thought maybe Tolkien had forgotten about her. Uh, and she said yes. And they soon after, uh, not got married, but got together, uh, and then were, were married later. That's, uh, he left quite an impression, man. I mean... Based on everything we know about him, he was a pretty awesome dude. So, you know, I guess I guess it makes sense. 
Yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to imagine. Can you picture, like, Facebook messaging someone out of the blue? You haven't talked to him in four or five years. I don't. I I just, doubt that would happen nowadays. I mean, obviously, <laughs> there's you know special cases or exemptions or whatever. But I, uh, yeah, I, I can't I can't see that happening nowadays. Yeah. So in September of 1914, uh, Tolkien wrote the first bit of literature that can really be identified uh, in this Middle Earth legendarium. Uh, in nature with the voyage of Arendelle, the evening star. Also, later in 1914, he begins his work on the story of Kulervo. Uh, this is a rather significant piece of story uh, that really is based on the myth, uh, a myth that already exists. So, uh, my Lord of the Rings lore is actually really poor. Um, and I have a really hard time remembering all the fantasy names, but it, so Arendelle is an elf, right? Correct. Uh, is she the elf queen? Do you know, or? So at this point, no, I mean, this is really the first bit that even starts sure. to begin to get involved well, yeah, in I mean, that. This is... But yes, I, I believe she's the elf queen and she was the evening star cause she was like super beautiful and magical or whatever. Right. Okay. So this is sort of the first iteration of that, maybe. Yes. The first yeah. Definitely first iteration. Everything that we're gonna run through, at, by the time it got published by Tolkien himself or by his son much later, everything had been revised so many times. It it was unreal. He he never stopped editing and rewriting his work, uh, and, and just working on this this legendarium uh, that we'll that we'll kind of get into here a little bit later. So the story of Calervo is significant for a couple of reasons. This marks Tolkien's main transition from writing poetry, uh, which he was inspired to do at With the Tea Club, to writing prose for the first time, uh, and, and very significant prose, really. So Calervo is extremely derivative of the Finnish epic poem Kalevala, uh, which is a major source of inspiration for a lot of Tolkien's later works as well, um, specifically one of them being Turin of Turambar. Uh, Turin is, and the, the story known as the Children of Huron, uh, is almost a interpretation and direct spinoff of the story that's in Kalevala and the story of Kalervo itself. Um, and so Turin Turinbar is one of the major and largest bits of prose uh, that really starts to develop and create the Middle-earth legendarium as we know it now. Um, so that book, uh, Clairvaux, the story of Clairvaux, this book was published in 2015 by Christopher Tolkien, his son. Um, so it, it had never been released before. This was just kind of Tolkien building up the mythology uh, and writing for himself and, and creating this world uh, with, with no intent of, of publishing at all. Um, and, and so this book contains the story of Calervo, as well as two essays uh, that were lecture topics given by Tolkien about the story. And so this is kind of really how we see a lot of the main, or, or really how um, this legendarium starts to develop. The, the only thing that Tolkien ever really does with it is use it as uh, inspiration or use it as some sort of talking point uh, for his work in linguistics or story or mythology. Um, he, he would give lectures and explain some of the stuff he had written and how it was derivative from mythologies and how the languages that he was using uh, really added to the mythology and, and things of that nature. 
So at this time, World War One uh, is started, and there is a draft. He did not immediately register for the First World War, uh, which definitely forced him to endure criticism from society and to some extent even his family. At that time, it was if you were able to, if you were young, if you were fit, you signed up for the war. That was very, very common. And if you didn't, you definitely suffered some ridicule and hate. Yeah, it was sort of like your duty, right? It's a societal thing. Absolutely. So he instead decided to finish school. That That is really what he wanted to do. So after he completed his finals in 1915, he did join the army as a second lieutenant in a reserve battalion. In June of 1916, he received the news that he would be posted to France, so one year after he enlisted. Uh, and then in October of 1916, while he was over in France, he came down with trench fever, uh, a disease brought on by the prevalent lice in trenches. So, first of all, that sounds terrible. <laughs> um, From everything I, mean, I know about World War One, trench warfare and being in trenches was awful. Just yeah, I, downright miserable. I still joke about trench foot uh, yeah. <laughs> with people. Yeah. It's like raining a lot or whatever. Like, oh no, watch out. You're going to get trench foot. Um, but also, yeah, he made it like four months or whatever. So it sounds like the conditions were really bad. Whatever trench he was stationed in. Yeah. And, you know, some people get affected by trench fever worse. Sometimes you can avoid the lice, although not really. Um, but yeah, he was moved back to England due to trench fever uh, and really was very sickly for a, really a long period of time. Um, but during his recovery, as he was in a hospital in England, he began writing the Book of Lost Tales, uh, beginning with the fall of Gondolin. So this was, the Book of Lost Tales was an extremely early uh, rendition of some of the very beginnings of the Middle-earth legendarium, uh, specifically with the fall of Gondolin. Still hadn't developed much of what we know Lord of the Rings as, if you've only kind of focused on those three books or maybe even The Hobbit. Um, this is way, 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 way before any of that happened. Um, so he spent the remainder of the war between hospitals and garrison uh, duty due to his sickness, uh, due to his weakness from the sickness. So he was, he, he continued to be sick uh, and definitely just didn't recover. It, it took him better part of, you know, five, ten years really to get over it and be able to, uh, he was never actually cleared for duty again, but be able to start, you know, living normally. So during this time, uh, we get kind of a major bit of inspiration for him uh, to include in this leg legendarium. So he attributes one event of he and his wife walking through the forest during his recovery uh, and her beginning to dance in this forest as they were walking as the, the idea of the meeting of two of his most significant characters and two characters that were incredibly important in his life personally uh, between him and his wife of Baron and Luthien. Uh, so these were two elves that were pretty significant in the early parts of the story at the very beginning of the Legendarium, which is where he's at and where he's writing at this current moment. You definitely notice the influence of kind of the magical elves in the forest theme in a lot of his work. Their elves are sort of portrayed as something that you don't fully understand. Uh, and and when they're in the forest and like dancing around, right? They're they're very happy and uh, uh, cheerful and kind of fickle, even. 
Um, so I could kind of imagine him like walking through the woods and having a really good hike and then being like, oh, what if it was like this, you know, all the time? Right. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, these good moments in his life, uh, you see him writing about, but also he, he really in- includes the bad, which we'll, we'll definitely see later. Uh, Tolkien often referred to his wife really as Luthien. Um, and on both of their headstones, when they were buried, uh, they have engraved Luthen, uh, Luthien and Baron. So definitely major, major inspiration uh, from his wife. So during this time period, Tolkien starts working on the Book of the Lost Tales, which wasn't actually published during his lifetime. But most of the major stories in the Silmarillion uh, that it was eventually published appear in their first form here as well as two of the major languages that go through the history of this world he's creating, and they're the base of this Middle-earth legendarium. And I'm probably going to butcher these pronunciations. Uh, Kenya, which is the Elvish language, and Goldegrin, which is the Gnomish Deep Elves, or later the Noldor. Uh, I think you I think you hit them on. I think it's Kenya and Goldegrin. I think, you know, based on... Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and for those that don't know, the Silmarillion is kind of considered like the quote-unquote Bible of um, the Lord of the Rings legendarium. It's all these original stories that he was writing that really developed the languages and the mythology that we see later on uh, in probably his most famous works. And it's actually the first book I read post-Lord of the Rings. So like I knew about The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings because at the time all the movies were coming out. Uh, and then I kind of learned about all this like extended work, and The Silmarillion was the first you know, non-mainstream Tolkien book I tried to pick up and read. How, uh, how, did, how did that go? I didn't finish it. Uh, it's, it's like a history book. It's, it's, a, it's a fantasy history book would be my description of it. Yeah, I, I, I picked it up when I was in middle school, which probably wasn't the best time to be doing that, but that's when I read the Lord of the Rings books. And I definitely struggled to get through it. It's dense. It reads like a history book. There's so much information and and really language and mythology, like we've talked about, stuffed into it, that it was a hard read, for sure. Yeah, there's uh, you don't have any anything to reference. Um, so so there's like epic. There's a lot of epic fantasy and more modern examples of epic fantasy that have all these crazy characters and peoples and legendary events that different groups have different names for and stuff so like uh i'm reading the malazan book of the fallen series been reading that like the last year or so but kind of the advantage now is i can just go to the wiki if i forget things if i see a name when i get to a book and i'm like oh shoot i should know that i just google it from my phone and there's like a good summary and then like what they did in the previous books that, that didn't exist at the time you know when we were in middle school especially when i was in middle school trying to get through these Right. It's pretty daunting. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this might be a good time to kind of talk about our experience with Lord of the Rings a little bit, uh, kind of give a little background. So I know that for you, it was required that you had to read all of the books before you could go see the movies. Right, yeah. So I wasn't 13, uh, and these movies were PG-13, and they were the movies were huge hits, right, at the time. This is early 2000s. So I had to read them in order to be allowed to see the movie. So that was sufficient motivation for me uh, to read through these books at like sixth grade or whatever I was. And then 
I know that I didn't actually end up having to read them before I saw the movies. I got to just watch the movies with you. Uh, right. I was a little young, so I didn't. I, I definitely didn't understand everything. Definitely didn't get it uh, entirely at all. Uh, but I did see the movies first, so that was that was uh, interesting for sure. Especially going back and reading the books and and seeing how different they were. Yeah, they are pretty different. I mean, just the whole approach and kind of the reason why they're famous is is too, totally separate. Like they're almost two separate works. Right. Absolutely. In a way. Uh, despite following essentially the same like broad story, but uh, so then yeah, post post lo- reading Lord of the Rings, I thought maybe I would read some of the other stuff, and um, I- I'll be honest, a lot of it I did not get through. No, I I've read a few things. I know I I got the story of Calervo, uh and gave that to you as well, and and it was interesting. I, I definitely did enjoy it, but they are. I think like we've discussed, they are focused on language and mythology. They are a lot more dense. It's not um, the fun, fantasy, maybe dark as well, but uh, these well-read novels that that you kind of think of or expect when you hear J.R.R. Tolkien. These are like dense mythologies that definitely kind of lend themselves to what what he was doing in his life as a professor of and, and as a philologist, a professor of English and everything. So yeah, yeah, and it's um, really the bulk of his work is that way. You know, maybe the most famous examples are are more uh, normal in quotes stories, right? Like have a more normal story structure and and have like a, a more natural flow. But the bulk of his work is going to be stuff like the Silmarillion. Right, yeah. Um, he originally he, he wrote The Hobbit for children, and he originally started out writing the Lord of the Rings trilogy for children. It, it definitely took a turn, but his original intention was for them to be children's books. Yeah, so in comparison to that, this, this these first stories that he were writing uh, include some of the first versions of The Wars Against Morgoth, The Siege and Fall of Gondolin, and Nar- Nargothrond. Sounds right to me. Uh, forgive me if I mess up these names. The Tales of Turin and Baron and Luthien, which you've talked about. Um, eventually, some of these get published. Uh, the Tales of Baron, Luthien, and Turin are published as the Lays of Beleriand. And he also just wrote a bunch of summaries of the mythology and that surrounded these short stories and poems. And again, these end up going into the Silmarillion at some point. So we kind of started talking about why Tolkien is doing these fantasy writings and stories. Anything you want to say about the... Yeah, so the Silmarillion and and, and what we're seeing here, and we've mentioned the word legendarium, uh, which is actually a, a word that was created uh, specifically for Tolkien's work by him. So really, it just kind of encompasses all of the body of work uh, that were Tolkien's writings relative to Middle-earth and those surrounding stories. Um, it, it, the term itself, as defined by Tolkien, is uh, the body of his mythopoeic uh, writings that forms the background and the story uh, to The Lord of the Rings. Um, so this this really kind of leads right into his his philosophy of how he wanted to write fantasy. So kind of his process that he would go through is he he first created 
the language and the maps that would inhabit these different worlds. And then he comes up with a mythology because he believed that languages only survive due to the mythology and, and the defining events that surround them. And to, these two are really inseparable from each other. You, a language without a mythology is dead, in his opinion. And so this kind of stems from his experiences with Esperanto growing up as a kid. So this was you know, supposed to be this universal language for trade and interacting in a more global society. And it ended up, it's, it's a dead language. It didn't survive because there was no like important historical events. There's no mythology. There's no important landmarks named in this language. So there's almost like no reason to be attracted to using it. So he would create the languages, then the mythologies were derived from this language. He'd draw some maps and he would use that map development as a further source for these mythologies. So you start tying these events to different places. And some of the most notable ones for the Lord of the Rings series are Kenya, Sindarin, and Adenaic. And Tolkien says that he told these stories and they existed specifically as an opportunity to get to use these languages and to start assigning the mythology to the language. So the first time he shares any of this publicly is in 1918. Uh, he reads The Fall of Gondolin to the Ex Exeter College Essay Club. Yep. Yeah. It was uh, really just kind of an accessory to a lecture he was giving. Um, and he decided to include his own writing. In it. And that's like the first time anyone really gets any of this uh, bit of legendarium or introduction to the Lord of the Rings mythology. So he's been working on this for six four to six years at this point yeah yeah absolutely so pretty early in its development yeah um, not past you know the main original stories of like turin and baron and luthien this is that original kind of set of stories that he was working with so in 1920 he was demobilized and left work at the oxford dictionary on the history and the etymology of words of germanic origin beginning with the letter w it's a very specific field yes like uh walrus was one word really that he worked on yeah yeah uh, yes yeah, i didn't know that was a germanic origin i didn't either until i did the research for this episode <laughs> are there a lot of walruses in uh you know like the traditionally germanic part of the world i don't know i, I yeah I, I couldn't tell you no no clue so uh, he then goes on to become an English uh, professor at the University of Leeds in 1924. He got through all the W's, I guess, and then follows it up by becoming the professor of Anglo-Saxon language at Oxford and Pembroke College in 1925. And so at this point, uh, you know, Tolkien and Edith were married, uh, and they had had four children, uh, John, Michael, Christopher, and Priscilla. And so after the birth of the last child, Tolkien started writing illustrated letters as if from Santa Claus, and a selection of these ended up being published in 1976 as the Father Christmas Letters. So this kind of starts, uh, he, he's using current mythologies, current things that exist in the world, and using them to kind of entertain his children and developing them and changing them, and this really kind of leads into what we start to see with some of his work with Lord of the Rings. So during his time at Pembroke, Tolkien wrote The Hobbit uh, and the first two volumes of The Lord of the Rings. But we will start with The Hobbit. 
Um, so around 1930, Tolkien was grading papers, and one student had left an entire page blank except for one sentence stating, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Uh, and, and kind of following the nature of Tolkien himself, he just he, he needed to find out what a hobbit was, why it lived in a hole, what kind of hole it lived in, uh, everything about a hobbit and why it existed in the first place. What was the story behind it? Yeah, I'm trying to picture how a student just came up with like a funny word, I guess. And yeah, just wrote I, it. Like, I, this is such a weird scenario. The only context that I know Hobbit in is related to Lord of the Rings. I don't know if that ex- is that a, is that a word separate from Lord of the Rings? I, not that I know of. I mean, it's, I'm sure if you Google Hobbit now, right, you're only going to come up with things related to Lord of the Rings. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, so it sounds like he just kind of let his imagination run wild and was like, what is a hobbit? Like, he lives in a hole in the ground? What would that be like? Right. Um, and that's that's how the book, The Hobbit, starts, basically. Like, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, uh, but, you know, not a dirty, smelly hole. It was a nice and warm hole, so he came up with this really positive um, thing from it. But it's just such a weird coincidence of events, like, turning in this assignment with the funny made-up word on it. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, I, if I was that kid who turned in that paper i uh i might ask for some royalties but also i would feel so great that like what i did created like this major fantasy epic that everyone loves well you would hope you get an a on that assignment at least right right i think that was that influential Yeah. yeah i mean you turned in one sentence on a paper and i mean yeah i don't know what the question was but i hope you got an a for that So this investigation that Tolkien kind of started grew into a story uh, that he would start to tell his younger children uh, and eventually turned into an incomplete manuscript that found its way into Susan Dagnall's hands in 1936, so six years later. Uh, After telling it with his kids, his kids enjoying it, stories of Bilbo Baggins, decided to start writing on it a little bit, got into her hands six years later, uh, and she was an employee at the publishing firm Allen & Unwin. She absolutely loved the story, and she asked Tolkien to finish it. Um, Once he finished it, she delivered that story to the chairman of the firm, Stanley Unwin, who ended up giving the story to his 10-year-old son, Rainer Unwin, to sample. Uh, And he loved it. So Hobbit, as as it, you know, in its origins, as it was beginning, it was stories told to his children, and it turned into a children's book. Logical flow there, you know? So The Hobbit ends up being published in 1937 and was immediately successful. Um, The Hobbit itself was not a direct uh, part of the legendarium uh, that we've been discussing. These original stories that Tolkien was writing, while The Hobbit contained some of these threads, and while some small parts of that legendarium leaked through, uh, it was not taken directly from that legendarium. It was a new and separate story, that had some of the same components leaking into it. Yeah, there's a lot less references to past events and like old famous heroes and and that kind of thing in The Hobbit that makes it flow better, maybe, to if this is the first book you read in the Tolkien universe, you're not stopping every so often and being like, like should I know this name or not, you know? Right. Um, and The Hobbit, it wasn't intended to be a part of the Legendarium, necessarily. It, it kind of was that way just because, I mean, this is what Tolkien, like, did, right? That er- everything sure. he did involved this, really. It's just on his mind all the time, and it, it, yeah. Right, but it wasn't an intentional sequel or continuation of that mythology. 
It just leaked through, really. So Unwin asked Tolkien if he had any further material, uh, like The Hobbit, and at this point, Tolkien felt that his legendarium, all the stories he had been writing with Turin, Baron, Luthien, the Book of the Lost Tales, uh, he felt it was presentable enough that he would be able to give this to a publishing company and they would enjoy it. Um, and at this point, he called it the Quinta Silmarillion, or the Silmarillion for short. So he's been working on it for like 20 years at this point? Right, off and on. So- yeah, so this is the point where he's like, okay, this is, it's finally time to share a little bit of it. Right. He, he got enough established. He'd done small bits of it at lectures or whatever, included some of that stuff. He, he discussed it with friends and groups that he was in, uh, and he kind of thought, okay, I have some good stories. I've revised them a lot. I have this mythology developed. This, this could be good. Uh, so he presented a small part of it uh, to Unwin, uh, the story of Baron and Luthien specifically, definitely one of his favorites. Uh, however, the reader that Unwin gave it to was not a fan of the poetry, uh, which was very prevalent in these early, early stories. Uh, but he did enjoy the prose and stated that overall the story was not publishable, uh, mainly due to the large amounts of poetry. So Unwin relayed the message, uh, but asked Tolkien to write a direct sequel to The Hobbit. He wanted more of that story, not necessarily of that mythology, that really at that point in time was kind of unconnected. Uh, Tolkien was definitely disappointed at the failure of The Silmarillion, uh, but decided to take up the challenge of a Hobbit sequel, and, and this is where we get into the start of The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, this is kind of the disconnect between uh, you know, the passion project of the creator and then what sells well basically um you know a a very detailed poetry about the lore of this mythical land is probably interesting to a smaller portion right of readers than like a well-written children's story like an entertaining kind of adventure story the only reason the silmarillion is popular now is because everyone loved lord of the rings so much probably wouldn't do so great on its own yeah there's just enough people wouldn't have been interested in basically learning right is what that is right. about this world if and, and in a way this is kind of like you know tolkien's idea of like a language is only relevant if there's a mythology attached to it and like a mythology in a history you could say are maybe only really relevant if people have an interest in the stories that are being told absolutely yeah and I, taking place in those areas i agree with that for sure so around 1936, uh, the same time pretty much as his submittal of the, the Silmarillion, he, Tolkien had expanded it to include the fall of Numenor, uh, which was inspired by the tale of Atlantis. So we start to see a little bit more mythology being involved. He's, he's further developing uh, this background, this legendarium, this history uh, that really allows him to make Lord of the Rings what it is. Uh, but so as... Uh, the Silmarillion, which we've been talking about a lot here, it was never actually published. So even though he tried to get it submitted, he never went back to it. He never ended up trying to get it published again. And so it was not published during his lifetime and was later published after being edited and compiled by his son, Christopher. I think we'll probably kind of talk about Christopher Tolkien's contributions at the end. Because uh, it is, it is, there is some like discussion around that. Absolutely. How a lot of this stuff wasn't even available until after Tolkien's life. Right. 
1936, he also, busy year for him, uh, gave a lecture and a subsequent publication of Beowulf, The Monsters and Critics. Uh, and so this is kind of a little bit more into the mythology. This was an old English tale that I'm sure most people are at least vaguely familiar with, whether it was, you know, the movie or, or maybe a general understanding of the story. Um, he really delved into the language, uh, took old English, broke it down. This is something he taught. This is something he knew extremely well and, and really completely changed everyone's understanding of how the entire story was interpreted and the intent and purpose behind the story. Uh, and it's definitely had a lasting impact on how all of us view Beowulf today. The movie probably wouldn't exist, uh, that the movie that a lot of people know and really know the story through wouldn't exist without this, um, this interpretation and, and this critique of Beowulf by Tolkien. So in 1945, he became the professor of English language and literature at Merton College, Oxford, where he remained until retirement in 1959. Uh, so that's 14 years of him teaching English at the same place. And this is really where he starts to kind of buckle down and start working on this legendarium and these stories, The Lord of the Rings. So also in 1945, uh, he works on the Notion Club Papers, uh, which was definitely an influential work for uh, the later bits of Lord of the Rings and uh, the legendarium itself. Uh, he did abandon them and never attempted to publish them or share them, uh, but they were later published as one of the volumes of History of Middle-Earth, uh, something published by Christopher um, as part of the main legendarium that goes behind the Lord of the Rings. So the story revolves around the meeting of a arts discussion group at Oxford, which parallels Tolkien's own life. Uh, and it is a fictionalization and a play on words of Tolkien's own club, the Inklings, uh, which we'll talk about here briefly. Uh, the novel discusses lucid dreams of Numenor, uh, which is a place in the legendarium uh, back, in, back in way before Lord of the Rings time. Um, and its connections to the lost civilizations of Atlantis, so we're seeing some more mythologies being thrown in here, uh, with Tolkien's Middle-earth. Uh, so through these dreams, he discovers much about the history of Numenor and the languages of Middle-earth. So he's further developing these mythologies and, and pairing them directly to those three main languages we mentioned earlier. Um, and the story mainly focuses on the character Alwyn Loudham, uh, Alwyn being the modernization of the old English name for elf friend, which translates into Elendel in Kenya, which was a main character in uh, his legendarium and in the Silmarillion, and also trickles into Lord of the Rings as well. Uh, and it becomes clear through the story that Alwyn is a reincarnation of sorts of Elendel. Uh, Tolkien also inserts a little cameo of himself, um, kind of hitting back on the origins of the name Tolkien. Uh, as he literally translates his name to Rashbold. So he inserts himself into the story uh, with a character named Rashbold. So Tolkien was, he, we've seen this pattern a lot where he kind of, he gets this group of, of similar minded creatives and they give each other feedback and bounce ideas off each other. And so he's one of the founders of this group known as the Inklings. And some of the more famous names in this group were Neville Coghill, Hugo Dyson, Owen Barfield, Charles Williams, C.S. Lewis, and for a brief time, his own son, uh, Christopher Tolkien as well. And uh, I, like you, I hear this relationship a lot kind of in the reverse thing. Like anytime there's something from C.S. Lewis, 
people talk about how he was in the club with J.R. Tolkien, you know? Right. Um, and I guess, you know, they both wrote these pretty epic fantasies that were more focused on sort of a broad timeline or, like, the history of a magical place rather than, like, a specific person. So I could see, you know, how that where that influence is really um, coming through. C.S. Lewis, kinda... yeah, yeah. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien are definitely the most well-known names on this list. Uh, but the rest of these guys were pretty famous English, English authors as well. Uh, so this was really just, like, a big old discussion editing group that really allowed them to like better themselves and make their work better. Yeah, so the, the main purpose of this group was to read and, and discuss their unfinished literary works. And uh, kind of on top of that, uh, you know, they've had some philosophical discussions and that kind of thing. And so Tolkien is noted as being a major reason for C.S. Lewis's return to Christianity. And this group was essential with commentary and support during the approximately 10 years that Tolkien was working on and writing the Lord of the Rings epic. So Tolkien completes Lord of the Rings in 1948. And while both The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings are, are set in this world in this uh, that he established in his Legendarium, they take place much, much later, uh, almost like in an entirely different age, basically. Now, uh, kind of as we mentioned earlier, Tolkien originally intended for Lord of the Rings to be for a younger audience, much like The Hobbit. Although, as he started to write it and develop it, he starts to pull in more darker themes. And I, I think it also gets more complex, and he, he starts pulling in more references to this legendarium and more famous figures as well. Yeah, I definitely, I, I think he, they asked for a sequel to The Hobbit, and that's how he started but as he got into it, I think he really just got into all the mythology he had been doing and just threw it right in. And the mythology he had been creating was definitely not children-oriented. Yeah, though I don't know that... I would say probably only because of its complexity. Right. Um, or maybe just be... You know, it's it's 2019 now and everything's so like grimdark all the time that Lord of the Rings doesn't seem dark. Um yeah, maybe. I, I, I can definitely see a little bit of that. But I, I do think it uh, the, the complexity of the work is really where it was at. Because like, like we mentioned, if you read any of Tolkien's other stuff, it's so dense and thick and full of information and mythology and history and language that it's not, not necessarily something that kids would read or, or maybe right. even could necessarily fully understand. Yeah, it's not something that they typically would, you would enjoy. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think this, this evolves into a, a little more complex work. And, and I, it is true that there is, like, actual evil in this. Where I think some of the, the like, you know, the big bad guy in uh, The Hobbit is a dragon. So that's not quite the same as, like, an evil person. Right. You know, or an evil, evil race. god incarnate. Right. Um. So it goes through this transformation, and from 1938 to the time of its eventual publication in 1954 and 1955, uh, he was working on these stories. And the now adult Rainer Unwin was probably the most important piece in getting these works eventually published. He dealt with Tolkien. He was kind of like handler and, and go-between guy, uh, because apparently Tolkien was described as being 
uh, very dilatory and temperamental with getting these works published and at one point even offering the whole Lord of the Rings series to a commercial rival of this publishing group. And that rival actually backed out after they realized how much material there was. And so it's basically only due to Unwin's advocacy that these books were published under the title of Lord of the Rings as three parts uh, in 1954 and 1955. So it turned out to be a good business bet. It was rapidly clear that both Tolkien and the publisher had underestimated how popular these books were going to be. And very quickly, the public started to take notice, despite it getting mixed reviews from um, book critics and the like. The BBC actually puts on a radio adaptation. Now, it's dramatically condensed, of course, uh, but this definitely helps the popularity of the works. Radio was definitely like still a huge medium, so the fact that they were, even though it was massively shortened, basically reading his books really helped. Uh, it, his friends were the ones that really supported it, so they were famous authors like C.S. Lewis or others, uh, but there were other you know, detractors, so it, it, it really didn't get large until this radio bit, which, which really helped to push it uh, in England only, of course, at this point. Right. Um, now I can see some of the things where, you know, we've already talked about the complexity of it and how, like, it feels like sometimes these stories only exist to get you to care about the, f the fantasy and the history in this world he's created. Uh, but I think also you think about some of the, the famous books, like what people consider to be good writing, and they're not, usually not fantasy, right? They're often fiction, um, but very rarely is it this fantasy sci-fi realm with lots of, you know, f and made-up languages and stuff. I can't picture any other, like, great work that has lots of made-up names and stuff. No, most of them uh, are, are derivative and include, like, some sort of philosophy or some, some right. yeah, it, you know, 1984, Fahrenheit 451, all the books you read in school and stuff, while they may be fictional. But I would say those are very sci-fi, like, compared to a lot yeah, of... Those, like, yeah, those, yeah, I, I hit on the sci-fi ones. But e even those, like, not as far into this fantasy, and, and as oh, we now know not. it as high fantasy... Not not in that realm. So these books get so popular uh, that even at at one point Tolkien even said he should have just retired earlier. Uh, he regretted not taking advantage of all the financial success. So the publishing company actually said they weren't going to pay him until the Brooks book broke even, uh, because after he was you know not being super great through the whole publishing process. Um, sure. And the fact that they kind of felt they were taking a gamble on them, they said, "Ah, oh, we're not going to pay you until they break even." So they did, uh, at you know, at at one point, and they they really really started to get going. Uh, and so he was kind of like, "Oh, like I I ended up making a ton of money when I didn't think I was going to. I wish I had retired earlier and had more time to like do my stuff." Right. Another really important turning point and the popularity of Lord of the Rings was actually due to the publication of pirated paperback copies in America. So the publishing company, uh, Houghton Mifflin, owned the rights to Lord of the Rings in America, but they did not copyright the books, at least in the United States. And so a company called Ace Books just began printing paperback editions of the book. Uh, they weren't authorized by Tolkien, and they weren't paying any royalties to them, but it wasn't copyrighted. So they started selling all these paperback copies on you know, on the other side of the pond. 
And this is uh, kind of an interesting topic because you see this argument, like even today, about piracy that, you know, oh, I'm actually justified in pirating it. It's better for the creator because I'm exposing it to more people. And I, I often debate how much that's really true. Right. But at least in this case, uh, you know, in 1955 or, or whenever they uh, start publishing these things in America. I, I think it was 65. Uh, 65, okay. Um, so even then, right, like media isn't as accessible. Like physical media is still the only way to get anything. Right. Um, and so maybe there's some validity to this fact. Although it sounds like they were already publishing it in America and these were just cheaper. <laughs> well, so they they had a they sold the rights and, and they had attempted a small run, but I, I don't think they ever really actually published it in America uh, consistently or, or really at all. Uh, they had just sold the rights. It had done well in uh, England and that was pretty much they were like, okay, we're good. That's it. That's we sold our books. We're done. Um, but then because, uh, those pirated paperbacks were so dirt cheap, um, people just started buying it, whether it was college kids can afford it now, or, you know, it's, oh, that's a $2 book at, you know, Barnes and Nobles. Like I don't mind spending $2. Uh, it, it exploded. Yeah. So on top of it being cheap and available, um, particularly amongst college students, as you mentioned, maybe because it was cheap and because maybe they're more likely to be interested in fantasy stuff. Um, but then the following lawsuit also kind of helped bring the books to public attention. Uh, there's no such thing as bad press, I guess. No, definitely not, especially when the author is involved. Yep. And so this led to the books becoming essential to the alternative society, and eventually Ace Books stopped publishing their pirated version and paid a lump sum settlement to Tolkien for all their sales. Yeah, so this in America, right, we're, we're 1965-ish. We're like, you know, in this kind of counterculture movement. Uh, and, and The Lord of the Rings kind of fit right into it. It was high fantasy. It was new, you know, kind of weird. Uh, it had a bunch of themes that kind of similarly aligned themselves to this counterculture movement. Um, so it, it just, it, it fit right in. So some of the works uh, that are most often cited as sources for Tolkien stories, which we've hit on a little bit before, uh, include Beowulf, uh, the story that, you know, he, he published that really influential paper on, the Kalevala, uh, the Finnish epic that he wrote a derivative story on, and then, you know, continued to go on with some of that mythology there. The Poetic Edda, uh, the Volsun Saga, which was also a main inspiration for the story of Kulervo, and the Herovar Saga. Uh, Tolkien also acknowledged Homer and Oedipus as his sources, while also taking ideas from Middle English works and poems. Uh, he also cited the Boethius Consolation of Philosophy, known as the Lathes of Boethius, Boethius uh, as philosophical influence. Uh, and characters in Lord of the Rings definitely took on some Boethian qualities. And this is kind of a weird crossover, but for those of you that watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine, to give you, a little, I guess, a little time frame, the last episode, they totally mentioned Boethius, and I thought that was crazy that I went, you know, just kind of stumbled on it in my research. Yeah, I guess so I haven't seen that episode, but that's, uh, that's a wild reference, because I, I don't know anything about this guy, 
Yeah, I have some philosophy, dude. Um, so, of course, Captain Holt brought it up. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So Tolkien the character that really makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely not going to be uh, Jake bringing bringing up some major philosopher. So while Tolkien did enjoy the increasing popularity of his works. I mean, who wouldn't? You're getting to be a super rich author. Everyone, everyone would probably enjoy that. Uh, he was also kind of cynical about the groups that were supporting his work. So these college countercultural movements uh, that were happening in America, people that were really buying up his book, he was not overly fond. Uh, of a bunch of hippies in America loving his books. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there were a lot of older people who really liked the hippies, <laughs> right? I mean, that's a whole. That's that's group. probably very true, especially at the you know the time period we're in. There, you know. He uh. He, and. Go ahead. Well, good. Go for it. Um, and actually, well, so this is kind of a trend you see basically from this point on uh where especially with like the movie adaptations of of the hobbit and then later the lord of the rings and then the hobbit again um you start to see like the tolkien like uh tolkien estate i guess now where they're not particularly fond of the way people interpret and you know like to enjoy the lord of the rings series now um because this was basically like his life's work right and the way he thought about it and approached it was this very epic story and history and whatever and um like dosing lsd and and tripping out with your friends is like not exactly how he imagined approaching this universe you know right we are definitely you know very far removed from tolkien though I mean, his stories at, at the end weren't even published by himself. The, the, the movies came so much later after him that I, I, I think we're so far removed from the author on these, you know, epics, generational spanning epics that I think it's kind of easy to, to stray away from what maybe Tolkien saw The Lord of the Rings as being. Yeah, definitely. So he was known to, as you mentioned, not enjoy uh, people who would take LSD and then read the books at the same time. Um, a couple other people that experienced this was Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick with 2001 Space Odyssey. So people that had a, a, a vision for their work. Uh, we, we see these works now as being you know, absolutely influential to media, so movies or books, uh, and really didn't enjoy how they ended up being consumed mainly. Um, so fans actually started to cause increasing problems uh, for Tolkien. They'd call him at, you know, three in the morning in England, which, you know, like West Coast was a normal time for them. So he ended up having to have like his phone number removed uh, from the directory. He had to move all this kind of stuff. Uh, so while he did, did enjoy that his works were being enjoyed, he didn't necessarily always enjoy how. Uh, Tolkien later in life, uh, and, and, as industrialization started to pick up, he had a really intense dislike for it. Um, he didn't enjoy how a ton of green space uh, and, and how for everything that he enjoyed and loved as a kid and really what inspired his books was being destroyed. Uh, while he was never outspokenly conservationist, he definitely kind of followed these tendencies. And for most of his adult life, he actually preferred to ride a bicycle uh, because he didn't like cars being everywhere and that industrialization. And so this definitely shows up in uh, 
in his books uh, with the forced industrialization of the Shire after the Hobbit's return. Yeah, and you, you in the books, it's like a very sad thing. Because, um, you know, Bag End and, and Hobbiton and all that was almost sort of this fairy tale land, right? Where basically everyone's happy and cheerful and is well off. Like, poverty doesn't exist in Bag End, basically. Um, and everyone just, like, everything grows nicely, and it's, like, springtime or, a, like, a nice summer's day to, like, go for a walk and eat a couple of breakfasts and all, all this stuff. Um, but it's interesting, like, you know, the feeling I get from these stories is that it's it's this special place because it's, like, kind of out of the way, and everyone, all the hobbits are, like, kind of on the same page where they just kind of want to enjoy being out in the warm sunshine with like nice flowers and a and a biscuit or whatever, and the everyone else in the universe, because they don't have you know they're these little people and they're not like a particularly powerful group or anything like that. Everyone else sort of has this agreement to just ignore them and let them be, because this is like the one nice thing and it's like well just let them have it, you know. And everyone else is kind of fighting to defend, you know, good, and. They just get to live in this own protected bubble, essentially. Right, yeah. It's definitely like a sequestered little bit that operates outside of everything else. It, it's it's alone and an individual. It doesn't really it, feel, feel everything else that's going on in the world, good or bad. Right. And, and then only... It's not really, like, realistic. It, it only really works because... Basically, there's certain people who have to sacrifice a lot to keep that, and I don't know. Maybe you know, maybe that's kind of that's how I would feel about stuff like this in the real world. Like, oh, you don't want it to industrialize, but like that's the march of progress, and the only way to not do that is to really give up a lot and isolate and have other people, you know, do the hard work essentially. Right. That way. Tolkien definitely identified uh, with how he describes hobbits. He, he considered, he, he's, you know, quoted as saying, like, oh, I'm a hobbit and everything but height. Um, so he, he, he loved the, the nature, you know, the gardening, uh, kind of their way of life, uh, sleep, you know, staying up late, sleeping in early, eating multiple breakfasts, you know, all that kind of stuff. He, right. he definitely put some of himself in that, in that world, in that bit of the world, in, the, in that bit of the story. And you, you kind of see from the main hobbits you follow, they almost have to, like, grow up and face reality. Uh, they're, like, called on, right, to to make sure everyone else can still enjoy that and live that way. And you see it from all these characters when they come back, Bilbo and Frodo and everybody else, that they can't live that same relaxed life. You know, they enjoy it just as much, but it's just not the same because they've, you know, they've they've seen the outside of the bubble and they know that like some people have to give up that kind of thing. So Absolutely. Uh, it's just interesting philosophy stuff, I guess. Yeah. I think definitely hits on a bit of Tolkien and his life for sure. So Tolkien died in November of 1973, uh, almost two years after his wife in 1971. As I mentioned earlier, both their headstones were engraved uh, with Baron and Luthien, respectively, as Tolkien always saw he and his wife as the two characters. So it just kind of shows you how, how ingrained this mythology, this legendarium was 
in Tolkien's own life. And so now we kind of get into the later years where all of these works besides The Hobbit and besides the three Lord of the Rings books uh, start to be released. And this is mainly due or really uh, pretty much entirely due uh, to his third child, his son, Christopher. Um, so all of these posthumous works that are published contain unfinished, abandoned, alternative, and outright contradictory accounts because they were always a work in progress. So like I mentioned earlier, Tolkien is was always revising stuff, changing things, going back, rewriting. Um, uh, th there were a lot of inconsistencies due to this, uh, as I think is to be expected. Um, and he never really had like the same story that he would talk about or include uh, for each individual story. It always changed. There was nothing, there was nothing set or constant. Um, there's even kind of discrepancies between the books that he did publish with the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, uh, kind of which we talked about a little bit earlier. The Hobbit wasn't really a part of the legendarium. It just kind of leaked through and eventually was part of it. Um, but he, he was never really able to fully, you know, combine those two. Uh, he mentioned that he would love to rewrite The Hobbit entirely uh, as opposed to creating, he, he edited and created a third edition um, and he said, I, I would have rather just rewritten it. Uh, if it's going to be a part of the Legendarium, I want it to actually be a part. I want to I want to change it. And so with Christopher publishing all of these later works, if you don't know a lot about kind of the story and everything that's involved, it could definitely kind of be seen or construed as Christopher possibly riding on his father's coattails. Uh, so as he, you know, posthumously published all of this stuff, uh, you could potentially see it as like a money grab or kind of may dilute the integrity of his father's works. Uh, but really, it was kind of it was kind of the opposite. So that was sort of my first reaction. We, you know, rewind the clock to like middle school me. Uh, read the Lord of the Rings, saw the movies, thought it was awesome. A few months later, I see the Silmarillion on a bookshelf somewhere, and I'm like, oh yeah, like ah, oh, I didn't realize he had more books. I should read that. And it was like, yeah, not a great experience. It was pretty young, um, and it's very different style. And then I saw the foreword that it was, you know, published by Christopher Tolkien afterwards. And it, I was kind of like, oh, like, it's just, they're just like bundling all his notes he had laying around. And it wasn't until you really start to understand um, that from J.R.R. Tolkien's perspective, it was really more about the stuff in the Silmarillion and all this legendarium stuff than Lord of the Rings that you realize, like, how much work Christopher had to do to get it into like a more coherent publishable form. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you a different perspective. Yeah. And, and so just kind of, I guess a little background before we start getting into that, Christopher was like one of the original test audiences for the hobbits. Like we told you before, you know, uh, Tolkien talked about these stories with his children's. And, and so he, he grew up to bedtime stories of Bilbo Baggins and these stories later became the Hobbit. Um, he was invited to be a part of the Inklings, so that famous British authors group, when he was 21 years old, becoming the youngest member of a very well-known and prestigious club at the time and now. He offered tons of feedback to his father during that you know 10-year-long writing period of The Lord of the Rings. He basically served as you know kind of a, a bouncing board and really as a pre-editor kind of. 
Um, all the versions of the maps that we see in the Lord of the Rings books are actually Christopher's maps, and they are signed by him if you look at it. Uh, his father would create the maps uh, as a part of you know this mythology that he would create before he got into the story. Uh, but Christopher actually interpreted them and made them coherent. Uh, he would fix the maps because a lot of times, uh, as his legendarium was contradictory and always changing, his maps would be too. Uh, so Christopher would change them, make them correct, make everything coherent and, and work together and be correct for the canon, quote unquote, and for the story. So that's, uh, like I know when uh, J.K. Rowling was writing the later books of The Lord of the Rings, she actually had, like hired a consultant to help basically fact check and make things consistent yeah she uh and i can only imagine how much bigger of a job that is for the lord of the rings universe you know right yeah she she talked about how um for harry potter she later like book six book seven she had like so much stress and anxiety about like making sure everything was consistent and always the same she, yeah she hired someone to make sure that everything was fitting within what she had already written so the fact that, you know, Christopher's doing this for his dad, uh, you know, obviously he and was... for a much crazier uh, setting, right? Oh, absolutely. So the, m way bigger, way more information, way more characters, way more story. That originally wasn't even consistent to begin with. Right. Yeah. Um, so Christopher then published a translation and commentary after he graduated college uh, of Icelandic mythology and then followed in his father's footsteps by becoming a lecturer and tutor in the English language at New College in Oxford. So he had his own interest and, and desire to be involved in language and English and mythology. So it wasn't just, you know, him saying, oh, my dad did it, that's what I'll do. He obviously enjoyed it and continued doing it on in his life. Uh, Tolkien referred to Christopher as his chief critic and collaborator uh, and named him as his literary executor in his will. Um, so then is, is when we get into the similar alien. So in 1977, Christopher compiled, so four years after his father's death, compiled all of these, these notes, all of these stories uh, into a large part of the Middle Earth Legendarium, uh, which his father had called the Silmarillion, and he published it. So Christopher mainly organized just masses of his father's work. Uh, with most of the material being handwritten, even extending out to like small little tiny pieces of paper with chicken scratch on it uh, half a century earlier. Because most of the stuff that was in the Legendarium occurred before he started writing Lord of the Rings. So and we're talking, you know, from 1918, 1916, uh, all the way to the publication. Uh, and then after that, his death in 1973. So huge gap of time with stuff that probably wasn't easy to consolidate uh, so this was oh. a huge bit of work um so names of characters would like routinely change uh he, he'd have like later drafts written over first drafts there was it was not easy this was not something that you could do easily um, he was assisted in part of this uh, by Guy Gavriel Kay, who later became a noted fantasy author himself. Um, the Silmarillion was followed by Unfinished Tales in 1980 and The History of Middle-Earth in 12 volumes uh, that were published between 1983 and 1996. Um, in 2007, The Children of Huron, really one of the first stories that he wrote, uh, was published standalone 
it, it was Tolkien's uh, really first complete work in the Middle Earth Legendarium, like we mentioned earlier. Uh, but there were other versions, uh, not the final consolidated one, uh, that were published in The Silmarillion, in Unfinished Tales, and the History of Middle Earth. And then this was followed by the story of Calerbo in 2015, Baron and Luthien in 2017, and the fall of Gondolin in 2018. So we're talking stories and mythology that started in the early 1900s and has extended all the way until today, still being published. That's that's just unreal. Yeah, and it became. Uh, like, like if you say Tolkien-ish fantasy or like the Tolkien style of fantasy, like that's a that's a topic, that's a genre of fantasy works. Um, so definitely had a big influence, and uh, I mean I guess you know so maybe at this point, as far as we know, this is more or less all the material that he came up with. But I don't know how you would know. <laughs> right, I think. I think we've kind of hit the point where Christopher Tolkien isn't publishing anything else. This is this is really it. He's kind of gotten everything out. There may be some revisions or whatever, but most of the work that Tolkien has has ever accumulated in his life has now been published to some extent, whether finished or unfinished. But yeah, I mean, this. So have you read any of this extended stuff? Yeah. So story Clairvaux. Um, I, I mentioned, you know, we I bought the book. It was it was good. It definitely derivative of you know like an original Finnish mythology, um, but kind of like I said, most of this stuff is is very very dense. Um, not like an easy, not super story or heavy or exciting necessarily. Um, it, it reads like history or it reads like mythology. Um, so there are exciting, fun stories within that. You know, I picked up the Silmarillion in you know middle school. I, I got through a little bit of it, but couldn't finish it. Uh, but I mean, I don't, doing research for this episode definitely kind of made me want to dive back into it a little bit, especially now that I have a better appreciation for it and probably can handle it a little bit better. And you've got access to important resources like the internet and things to help you, you know, make connections and keep track of stuff. Absolutely, yeah, that uh, definitely does not hurt. Because if you're like checking it out from the library and you're like, oh wait, like this is the first time this name's been mentioned in this book, but it was from a previous one. Like, what did they do? And yeah, yeah, and and really, the mythology seems like really awesome. I I, I know a lot of vague details about it um, and how it connects to Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. And everything that I know about it sounds really awesome, and, and it does sound like it would be a great read. Yeah, for for me, it's always about how it connects to characters I was interested in, I guess. So, like, things that would be, that I would be interested in reading about would, would be things about, so, you know, the fall of Gondolin and, and maybe, like, the history of Gondor or something. You, things that you encountered in the story you enjoyed, then you learn a little bit more about, like, how it came to be or what this group is and how it formed. That's kind of what makes things interesting. Um, so it was it's like that thing we talked about earlier where you know Tolkien was was saying oh so the language is only important if it's attached to a mythology and the mythology needs to be connected to this geography in a sense. 
And I, I think all that is really only um, becomes much more compelling if it's connected to like heroes or battles or, or, or some big event that you're interested in. Right. And that's kind of how you, you draw people in into this universe, I think. I think, and you know, obviously it's, it's the basis for the Lord of the Rings and everything like that. So it does tie in uh, fairly, fairly directly um, that you, you have the guy who essentially created Sauron, the main, the main baddie in Lord of the Rings. You have, uh, you know, the people who started with all the, all the original rings you have, you know, the, the birthplace of like the, or the elves and, and moving to middle earth and, and their story there you have, you know, and they do leave middle earth, right? I know that much. They do. Yeah. And you have the, the story of, of these gods essentially that come down to middle earth, the, travel to middle earth and become you know like gandalf or essential players in the story and so there's definitely a lot of tie-in i i think a little bit uh has to deal with you know reading poetry if that's not your thing that definitely gets you probably a little caught up in silmarillion and then it, I, I don't think it's written uh as i don't want to say as well uh but it, it's, it's not written quite as much of as a story it's written as a history, and I think that definitely inhibits it a little bit as well. But, I mean, you know, talking about this this major fantasy epic that really defined its own genre and has spanned such a long period of time, uh, had to start somewhere. So we, we started with the history of J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, and we're really glad that, you know, you guys stuck with us through this and were able to listen in. Uh, we really appreciate it. And if you want to check us out on Facebook and Twitter, Share your thoughts of J.R.R. Tolkien, where, you, where you're at with The Lord of the Rings, what you liked about it, what you didn't like, uh, your favorite character, you know, whatever it happens to be, start some discussion with us. Yeah, and of course, we'd love to hear your feedback on this episode and the previous episodes we've done. If there's topics you want to see us do in the future, uh, you can let us know through any of those platforms. Um, you can check out other episodes of our podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or any others. Google I'm Play, saying. all Google of the Play, above. Google Play, man. Yeah. We really appreciate, so. appreciate you guys listening. Uh, thanks, and we'll see you next time for our next part of Lord of the Rings.